When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project, Angie lets you browse homeowner reviews, compare quotes from multiple local pros, and even book a service instantly. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 674. Now, I am in Milwaukee right now. Uh, I have, I'm not going to say gorged on cheese curds, but April Richardson, who's opening for me here, um, uh, and doing a great job, by the way, we had, and, and we would not shut up about the cheese backstage. There was all this sort of chat, this, like these cheddars and these, these, what we would consider from California as exotic Wisconsin cheeses, but here you just call them cheeses. Uh, so thank you, Wisconsin, for your delicious cheese and your your spicy cheese curds and your uh, we had deep fried cheese curds earlier, and so it's basically neither one of us are going to poop for a month. But it's totally worth it. We're going to be in Detroit tomorrow in Royal Oak at the Royal Oak Music Hall. So go to FunComfortableTour.com to get tickets for that, and then uh, yeah, then I'll see you in Bonnaroo as well in in June. This, uh, this community corkboard, which you can get your thing potentially added to by emailing events at Nerdist.com on the corkboard. Uh, one of our listeners, uh, whose name was not in the email, founded a nonprofit called College Gamers Association. They are partnering with another organization called Game Start School, and they use video games to teach kids about programming and game design. Proceeds will go towards helping underserved pro- uh, students in the metro Detroit area attend their classes for free. They're promoting a gaming marathon on the 30th, where participants will raise pledges for every hour they stay awake and play video games. So you can go to collegegamers.org and gamestartschool.org for more info. Christian Murray is a a feller who wants to promote Yestercades in New Jersey. They have 60 cabinet games ranging from Pac-Man to Burger Time to Arkanoid to more contemporary games like Time Crisis, Golden Tee, and Off-Road. There's also a selection of pinball machines ranging from Twister to Pinbot uh, to Twilight Zone and Sopranos. And also they have a 55-inch flat-screen TV with a ton of home uh, systems like the Atari 2600 and Television, ColecoVision, NES, Super NES, Sega Genesis... Sega Saturn, N64, Dreamcast, GameCube, PS2, Microsoft, uh, a a variety of Microsoft Xboxes, and uh, they have uh, two locations in Red Bank and Somerville. No quarters necessary. You pay hourly. You just get a day pass. Find more at yestercades.com. And I am very excited about this. Totino's, uh, who make the pizza rolls, are sponsoring a big thing for us to find a comedian called Favorited Comedian. Uh, what do pizza rolls have to do with comedy? Well, it doesn't matter because what they have to do with it is that they're helping us find a comedian to place on the Nerdist stand-up cluster, which we're going to be recording, I believe, June... Maybe June 8th, I think, is the date? 
but we're going to be recording that at Nerd Melt, so we're going to do another fa- uh, uh, stand-up cluster this year. And uh, and then that person will not only get to be in the stand-up cluster, but then they will get to do an opening set for me at San Diego Comic-Con, uh, that Friday night show of Comic-Con at the Balboa Theater. So this is a very cool thing that they're doing, and uh, they are helping us continue to make content as well as um, finding a comedian. And we've made a series, of, we're making a series of videos for them too. If you go to totinosliving.com, you can uh, register and submit your clip, and uh, hopefully we'll see you uh, in the stand-up cluster. This episode is Mr. Greg Proops, who is a goddamn comedy genius, um, a man that was inspiring to me when I was watching Who's Line in college, and realized that maybe I wouldn't go into improv because <laughs> when you see people like Proops, you're like, oh, that's 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 how fast your brain is for those that type of improv. Uh, but he's been on the podcast a bunch of times. He's promoting his new book, The Smartest Book in the World, A Lexicon of Literacy, A Rancorous Reportage, A Concise Curriculum of Cool, available now wherever books are sold, and also, of course, Smartest Man in the World podcast. And, of course... You know, when he tours as stand-up or when he tours with Who's Line or when he's on at midnight. Uh, but he's a good dude, and I adore him. And uh, he is uh, he has some amazing stories for this particular episode of the podcast. And now here we go with the Nerds Podcast number 674 with Gregory Proops. Now entering Nerdist.com. Thank you. Do you want a coffee drink or something? Sure. Can you give me a decaf? Uh, yeah. Right. Iced, iced something. Iced something? All right, cool. cool. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, You're on the back cover. You're thanked in the thanking. I? Oh, my God. I'm on the back cover. I thank you on the thank you page. Oh, this is fantastic. And I wrote an inscription sheet in the front for you. You. Thank you, man. You've done so much for me. I oh can't my tell you god! How much please. I appreciate it. Please. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure I, I'm sure I, I'm positive I told you this the first time you ever came on the podcast, which I remember was in probably 2010 in the green room at the punchline. Right. They were going to let me in. <laughs> what? I, I was leaving. I, I went there, and then the janitor was there, and I'm like, I got to do a thing. He's like, you close today. <laughs> And then you came running out and like, we're in here. We're in here. Come on, come in. But, uh, you know, I mean, this is such a huge honor for me. Just having been, I mean, I'm sure I told you that when, when, uh, when Will Wheaton and I were at, at, you know, when we were roommates at UCLA, every day on Comedy Central, we watched Who's Line. Every (laughs) fucking day we watched Who's Line. And, uh, you know, we're just such huge fans of you and Mike McShay and Colin and Josie and... Clive, and so you know, when I first met you, it was a very, it was like, a, oh my god, Greg right, Proops, right. you know, I mean, TV friend. So it was, uh, you know, this is this is really cool. The smartest book in the world, it's called, uh, which is genius 
because it ties to a podcast that people should listen to called The Smartest Man in the World, yes. hosted by Greg Proops. It's a joke. Uh, <laughs> actually, think I'm the smartest hey, man. Hey, how in the come world. you think? Who said, how come, who are you to say? Only every once in a while I get that. Most of the time people get it, but sometimes people are like, how come you're so smart or whatever? And I'm like, because you're so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but you kind of. You like playfully antagonizing people. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> That's a good way to put it. I mean, it's almost like... With charm. You know, it's, it's like your, your set sometimes are sort of like <laughs> hunting humans for sport, where it's like you, <laughs> you, you release the human on your estate, and yeah. then it's like, all right, boys, let's get them. Yeah. You know, but not in, a, not in a malicious way, more in a fun, playful... You no, know. It's like that Gilligan's Island episode where the guy shows up and it wants to hunt Gilligan or whatever. Yeah. Oh, Wow. Although I've had some roughies. I mean, I was in Boston last week, and uh, the podcast was great, but the regular weekend crowds for the stand-up, oh, my goodness. You know, I talk about women a lot in my act, and I'm feminist stuff, and a guy yells out at one point, what are you, a woman? And I was like, holy cow. (laughs) And I said, yeah. How small is your dick? You know, I go, you better hide those cocktail straws over there because we got some uninvolved dudes. I, I go, how small is it? Can you get with a colander? <laughs> so, okay. So you were basically taking a pro-feminism stance uh-huh. and someone in the audience was uh, basically being a caricature of uh, the, the other side. Yeah. I mean, all I was talking about was like women get hassled on the street and that no woman ever comes up to a man and goes, smile. You, that's, you're too cute with that mustache and that flannel shirt not to smile. <laughs> nice package. You're delivering that for UPS. And like he was like, what? You know. You can't be nice to people yeah, yeah, right, no more right. and tell them their tits is yeah, nice. Right. All right, take it down. Yeah, it was, was Mookie. Let's <laughs> so half the crowd was down with it. And, half, and then I'd say, uh, I want to see a woman president, which is part of my act. And I have a big thing about it. And, and a, a couple of nights, guys went, boo. Oh, yeah, and you're like, really? Really? Wow. Why not just bring the branch that you swing from? <laughs> <laughs> How can you get out of the tree to get down to my show? How did you find me? I thought only higher primates could come to the show. <laughs> that should be a requirement from now on. I think you, I'm going to post. You that. must be at least this evolved, and it's basically <laughs> the hands. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's the hand thing, but it's the evolution chart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like underneath, like right. Guess we can't stay. Because sometimes they'll put up, you know, that this show contains adult language, or this show contains whatever, and don't get mad, you know. Which, of course, no one ever reads or listens to. No, no one ever no, listens no, to the course. announcements or reads no, at any point. No, 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 People openly denying they were using their phone, like in the front row. Take out the phone. One lady had the flashlight on it, shined on me on stage, and I went, did you just take your phone out? And she went, no. And I go, <laughs> don't bullshit me. I'm not blind. Like, you know, like I saw the light go in my eyes, you know, and like, yeah, they were just... Are you worried at all about the, any of the uh, Meerkat Periscope live streaming apps? Uh, what are those? Oh, boy. I don't mean to bum you out. Uh, basically, they're apps that essentially you can just stream content. Uh-huh. It's on, on instantly. Wow. And then the people that are following you see exactly what you're. I mean, it's basically a live streaming app. Oh god. And so I, you know, I, I think it's. I think it has a lot of fun uses. But also, I became sort of terrified for a comedy show. Like, no, please don't stream that. There's so many reasons why, why a comic does not – just so people know that we're not being assholes. A, you don't want your material being published Mm-mm. before you have a chance to make a special out of it. Because yeah. a joke is like a magic trick, and once people see it, like they don't need to see it again. Yeah. And secondly – 
you know, if you're working out material and it's like sometimes within the context of a larger set, you can you can risk having a little bit of a lull so you can find jokes. But if someone just puts that little piece uh-huh. out of it, then it, it completely people are like, this is fucking dumb, you know. So it's, it's it put this in a very weird position. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, I was thinking of the other use was, of course, you could put it on yourself and go like, I'm going to stream this or stream yeah. this act or whatever. But the one thing I don't want is my club act streamed live because what if someone does yell something out and you call them some horrible name and you know show the ugly side of yourself then everyone then you're michael richards you know like oh my god i can't believe he acted that way and it's like you don't understand it's a fight for survival sometimes when you're on stage if people are going to get western with you you've got to quell that people are going to get western you know you're calling me out yeah i brook no dissent on stage man and i don't and you know more than that you like you said it's a human hunt the thing that rubs me the wrong way is I don't mind if they're stupid and I don't mind whatever. It's if they're just not going to participate and they're just going to lay back and let everything wash over them. That's when I really get angry. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. You have to meet me halfway on some of these jokes. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. And, you know, I'm not even going to say it's halfway. If people yeah. give 10 to 20 yeah. percent, it, it works. Yeah. Because it's sort of – I mean it is a relationship that you're establishing. Yeah. It's not It's not just – It's. I think it's – Deceptive to think that it's a monologue. It is, at least the way I do it, it's kind of a conversation. Yes, it's at least an yes. emotional conversation. Very much so. And not, and not so much, you just sit there and listen to what I... Like, there are some comics who have a very one-way street kind of... But, right. but people like you and I do not. We're very... No, no, I'm there to connect. Conversational. Yeah, connecting's everything, I think, in a comedy act. And, you, know, I, you know, you have barometer jokes. And you, you throw them out there to see if they're listening or if they can make a move or anything like that. And, you know, one of them was I go, uh, uh, Bill Clinton used to sneak into the Oval Office. And I go, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. President, you can't come in. Well, well, that's all right. I'll just sit in the corner and be quiet as a mouse. And then usually there's a huge laugh there. Right. And because they figured out it's an Oval Office. Oval Office, yeah. Two times in Boston, nothing. <laughs> and then I go, I'm sorry, it's an Oval Office. And then the, a couple times, oh, Like like disappointment, like in England, that joke. Before I'm even done saying it, they're screaming, right? Right. They love the whole. It's 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 a visual pun. It goes around the corner. This this this. Not that it's such a genius joke. It's just a straight up Oval Office joke. There's no corner. But you have to be listening. And I say Oval Office five times. You know, before (laughs) I go, I'll sit in the corner, and then you know, and yeah. So sometimes you're like, wow. When the barometer jokes don't work, you're like, holy kittens. (laughs) But sometimes those jokes are. it, it, they're, they're, they can also be crossroad jokes where it's like, if you respond this way, I'll take this path. If yeah. you respond this way, it's this other yep. circuitous route. Yeah. Then, I'm gonna get, um, then we're going to take the easy way out, and I'm not <laughs> going to do anything challenging the rest of the night. <laughs> Although with me, I'm perverse. I'll, I'll go for the most awful. Then I'll just go, no, now we're going to do content. Now I'm going to get deep into my politics, and you guys are going to have to suffer through this now because you've hacked me off so hard by being stupid that – uh, but I don't always look at it that. Believe me, every night you go on, I go on with the best intentions, you know? Like, right, what does Doug stand up and say? The, you spend the five minutes before you go on thinking of something funny you can start with, you know what I yes. mean? Like, I want to come on and be in the moment, you know? Yep. So one night I come on, I'm gangbusters in it. That's too much. Now they're all back in their seats. The next night I think, oh, I'll go slow. So I Bob Hope it and tell each joke real slow and let every punch, and that doesn't work. And then you're right. like, okay, now I've done two of my tricks. <laughs> <laughs> I've only got three left, you know, because I, I usually I go a mile a minute, but I was seeing that that was not working, you know. Right. Uh, in certain places you can go. What kills me is like, you know, you know, I play the South or, or, or Texas or North Carolina, Atlanta, whatever, 
uh, and you can make fun of them. They laugh. And in Boston, I thought them very defensive, you know, because I'd start in on them and I'd go, how many mooks from South, you know, are here and blah, blah, blah. And boo, hey, hey, you know, like and if, <laughs> they really, <laughs> things that I thought would just kill, uh, got uh, confusion. I have a, like a 20 minute bit about art going to Ireland because I've been to Ireland a million times. And, and of course, I've done it in Ireland and the Irish people are pounding the table because you're talking about them for right. half an hour. And in, in Boston, they were like, oh, whoa, hey, you're making fun of Ireland. I'm like, I go, yeah, there's a faux Irish pub here next to the club. And isn't that the story of Boston being faux Irish? And uh, then they, they really did not enjoy it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so these particular crowds were not, uh, they didn't come to play. Not as much as I wish they had. But like I said, the podcast, the podcast was fabulous. But that, you know, when you do a podcast, you know they're coming to see you. You do a stand-up show, I don't know what the percentages of people that have just come to a show. Right. Well, there are also different, I mean, you know, your, your stand-up can be more driven by your personality, mm. but then there are also just, like, club acts. Yeah. And a club act is a high joke per minute ratio. You know, it's like, in a minute, they're going to have, you know, 60 jokes. Yeah. They're going to be, they're, they're going to, they're going to do most of the work going to the audience. And that's fine. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but everyone, but everyone's different. And sometimes the audience just wants, yeah. they just want, I just want quick, easy jokes about things. And, and other times people are willing to take the journey or they know who you are and they're, they're yeah. willing to kind of like, okay, I'll, I'll come, I'll come meet you a ways. But, it, but, but the funny thing is you just don't know. You just don't know. And you have seconds to figure it out yes. when you get on stage. That's what's so surprising, right? Because you really don't know. And, like, and then, like, you'll, I'll do a set, and then, like, you think, oh, this is really chewing it. And then half hour in, start into something, politics or whatever, something intellectual. And then they start laughing. And you're like, why didn't you tell me I could have done this? <laughs> I tried to take it easy on you people, and now you're the, this is what you wanted? And then you think, okay, I'll start the next one real high. And then you start it real high. And, mm-mm. I think maybe what you need is uh, <laughs> maybe, like a, maybe like an RN with a clipboard yeah. to come out <laughs> and basically just ask the audience a yeah. series of questions. Yeah. And, then, and then you as the doctor come out afterwards and go, mm-hmm. Okay, right. so Clinton. Uh, okay, diphtheria, yeah. uh, <laughs> and then you start. The, and then you give them that set. Right. Like you give them that. Does reception. anyone here know who Joe Biden is? <laughs> Has anyone ever read a newspaper or been on the internet besides you? You know YouTube. It'd be kind of funny to just show them a slideshow of images and yeah. see what they respond to. Go, Does okay, anyone okay, identify okay. this? Yeah. Does anyone know who the Boko Haram is? Yeah, just. Yeah. Do- <laughs> there's some hilarious Boko Haram humor coming your way. Oh my god! Way. Well, basically, the world is turning into <laughs> fucking comic book villains now. I mean, like, right? It's, it's you know, Boko Haram has pledged allegiance to ISIS. What <laughs> are you? What's happening? Yeah. You know, so it it is. It's, but I'm sure a, a lot of uh, it, your your standard comedy club audiences may or may not be aware of that type of a situation. But it's not again nothing against them. You know, it's like. So people work hard all day. They're not ensconced in comedy and news, yep. and and they, you know, they just want to come and and forget their day, forget the news, forget reality, and laugh. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, it's not always a it's not always a perfect matchup. And and but thank God, I I I am I thank the Spaghetti Monster that uh, <laughs> I. <laughs> I have the ability to, if I need to, scrap my set and just go into the audience. Oh yeah! Like oh, yeah. I do. You, do you ever? Do you ever feel bad for people who are like who are super scripted and then it's like they do the same yeah. joke? They're like, yeah, then yeah. you're stuck. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a joke per joke, uh, letter for letter, word for word, comma for comma, semicolon for semicolon. And then you think um, you're not going to be able to do that tonight because <laughs> there's, an, there's an insurrection happening in this room here. This is the Oxbow incident. You're, someone's going to someone's going to get hung in here. 
No, I'll drop my script in a New York second and, uh, and go to something else. And, of course, if something happens in the room or something really funny happens, I'm a big believer in mistakes uh, and, and, uh, and following them. Down wherever they lead, because they they usually are like the best yes. discoveries. It's never funnier than when something messes up completely and you chase it and that works. Then the audience really remembers it and they're like, "I remember doing a corporate gig in New Jersey years ago, and you know how they you know how corporates they're like, we're going to start at nine and then it's ten. We're right. going to start at eleven. They're still doing the banquet. We're going to start. You know, they're giving out the awards." I remember sitting in my hotel room in my little suit and tie, pathetically on the edge of my bed. <laughs> Finally, they bring me down. And I go on to this, you know, and they've been there for hours at this point. They're kind of juiced. And I can't remember what they were. Like, it was all guys. And the guy, my mic went out two seconds into the act. And that was the whole show. I railed into the sound guy. He finally brought it up. I had had a go at him. Then the, finally the mic worked. And by that point, fucking they're standing and cheering. I'm like... I was so, like, didn't want to do the show at all. You know, by that yeah. point, you're like, oh, God. And you're thinking, I don't have enough material about your crappy jobs, so I'm going to have <laughs> to do my act, you know. Right. Uh, but when the mic went out, that was, like, 25 minutes on the mic. And then they were like, he's a genius. He made fun of that the mic went out. And you're like, it, that's all it takes, really. Well, but because it, it, is, it, is, it is at the core, and I think this is why it's so difficult to shoot stand-up and put it on television, is because it is a communal experience. And so when, when you are commenting on things in the moment, it's of that little specific sub-community that you have all created together. Yep. And a lot of times you can create that with jokes because they're relating to things that you're saying or you're relating to them or they're relating to you. But it, is, it, it, it can be very difficult to follow things that happen in the moment with your act, which does not involve the audience. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I had a, a, a years ago, Tom Sawyer, who ran the Cobbs in San Francisco, yeah, I, know, I used to go into the crowd a lot and, and work the crowd. And I was up there one night and he came, after the set was over, he goes, come here. And I go, what? And he goes, you can't follow yourself. <laughs> he goes, you go into the crowd, you light them up, and then you go back to the material. And he goes, everybody smells it. They smell the material, man. So he, he's like, you got to make a decision. And that's when I quit talking to the crowd. Oh, really? Yeah, I quit talking to the crowd after that. Like, I can do it because I can improvise. Like you say, if I have to, for whatever reason, go into the crowd and that's the whole show, I'll do it. But I try to, you know, you go up there with an agenda. You know, you want to say the things you're going to yeah. say. and. Uh, who was I talking to about the other night? Or, you know, someone like, you know, people who interview you uh, that aren't com the comedians, you know, like if they're hip uh, journalists, they know what's going on. But a lot of people, times you've got the gardening consultant or the motoring person has been sent over to interview or the person from the financial page. And they go, why aren't you nervous to go on stage? And you're like, no, that's the most basic tenet of performing. If right. I was nervous, I wouldn't be going on. I'd be in the back room crying, you know, <laughs> like, no, I'm never nervous to go on. I want to do it right. And yeah. there's the big difference. Like, I want to do it the way I want to do it, and I want to say the words in this particular order, and I want you to get this message. And then when that doesn't work, you know, you're like... Uh, but I love the idea that people put their own civilian precepts on it. Like, I'd be afraid to do that. Yeah. And it's like, well, you would be afraid to do that, so don't do it. Well, yeah, it's like, it's, <laughs> if, if, I, if I meet someone who's a, who's a uh, you know, like an engineer or a... Or a a med student and they're like man I could never get on stage I'd be like I could never be a med student right. you know like it, you could yeah. ultimately if you put in the time yes. you could you could figure out anything that's what I said to them I, could, I couldn't be a doctor I'd have to put in 10 years like, yeah. like you would have to as a stand up to that's learn right. how to do this it's a craft and it has to be applied you know <laughs> it is but, it, but it's also um, uh, it, there's a lot of people that 
come. I think people are more hip to comedy now, but they still. Oh, yeah. But they still, uh, even though the lines have been blurred a little bit between, because now, basically now everyone's a performer because of right. the internet. But uh, it, it, it's still, I find people very participatory at shows. And it's like, yeah. oh, these people aren't really afraid to speak out at all. No, it's like Oprah. All of a sudden, they, everyone's <laughs> empowered to be in your show and comment and make value judgments on the things you're saying, whether the booing and cheering, you know. the. I think that with the internet... You know, you find a different kind of comedy fans. Like when I go out with the Who's Line guys and we do improv shows, those are TV people. They watch television. Mm -hmm. They still watch television. To them, it's really, really important. Not that everybody doesn't, but I'm just saying you do a podcast or whatever, and these are people – it's the phone. The phone and the computer. That's where they get their entertainment. They're watching Hulu or Netflix or, you know – they're choosing what they want to watch, yeah. whereas other people are like, hey, how come your show's not on anymore? Like, the tides and vicissitudes of TV <laughs> dictate their entertainment. You know, uh, oh, I haven't seen you on TV. It's like, um, whose line's still on? Still on. I get that one all the time. Don't you miss doing whose line? I'm like, no, I just did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's on a different network. It's on channel four now, not seven or whatever, in your world. So right. you've got to move over two channels. And then they go, really? It's on? I'm like, yeah, for three years. We- <laughs> St- Wait, whose line? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Still on. Yes. Yeah. Although when it wasn't on, my favorite, I was over at Papu's Hot Dog. What, what's the place over in Burbank? Uh, used to, it's not there anymore. I think they made it into a Chipotle or something or a umami burger. But it was across from Bob's Big Boy, and it was called Papu's Hot oh, Dog Oh, yeah. Pa- yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in a hand-painted Yeah, yeah. And it yeah. Had like a picture yeah. of a hot dog doing exactly burlesque or whatever. What talking about, yeah. <laughs> and I went in there to get a burger one day because I was in Burbank, and the lady goes... <sighs> don't you miss being on Who's Line? <laughs> I was like, uh, oh, yeah, I mean, a yeah. little bit, you know. I, mean, you know. I see them all the time, so no. I, I, work with <laughs> I get my fill. Yeah, I, I don't miss anybody because I see them. Do you think that comedy specials are obsolete now? Well, the last one I did, we shot at Musso and Frank, and we put it out uh, on VHX so that people could just download it on their phone or whatever. Yeah. So I had a good time doing it, but it's not something I'm living on, and I didn't buy a Hummer or anything. Uh I think that the old paradigm of like where you're on a stage and they put a globe and a and a and some weird set behind you that's supposed to indicate your personality. Right. I think that's a little old fashioned. Yeah. That's why we went with Musso because it's more my character and it's more what I talk about. And then I could have a drink and we had waiters and the and everybody dressed up and like it you know. And I talked about the place I was in the first twenty minutes I talk about the history of Musso's. Faulkner wrote there and, 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 and Chandler and uh, John Fonny and all these, you know, drunk authors and Bogey drank there and all that jazz because it's such an old place. So yeah. the, I thought, well, we'll spend the first 20 minutes just talking about being here and what it means to be in a room in Los Angeles that was started in 1919, which in L.A. history is like ancient, you know, they might as well, they might Rome. as well be the druids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> but there's bushes and stuff. I do, though, a little bit, Chris. I mean, I don't think it's obsolete as much as... I think you have to tackle it on your own. Like, when Maria did the one in, in the house... For me. That, to me, is like genius. You know what I mean? Because so it's taking it and flipping it over. It's the big proscenium stage with everybody cheering everything you say that smacks me as like... It's comedy, but it's almost a rodeo of comedy. I want to do... I'm a close-up magician. I want to be right there and... Oh, wow, yeah. You know what I mean? I, like, I want to see them. I want to... Well, that's more of an art piece, too. Like, yeah. when, when, the, when the presentation of your set, you know, is either Musso and Frank's right. or it's Marie in her living room, it's very much like, this is an art piece. Mm-hmm. It's not just me telling jokes. Like, this is... The environment I'm using and the platform is, is is being used in such a way that it's a character in the set yeah. in and of itself. But I just wonder, 
because, you know, when we were growing up, a comedy special was, this is the pinnacle oh, of yeah. everything that you've worked on. And now it just sort of seems like it's so, everything's so disposable. People are just like, meh, okay, great, next, right. you know. Well, the Dennis Miller one from the black and white one. Black from, and white, that's from, his second special. Yeah, that, that, I remember watching that and going, oh, my God, like it looks so great and it's so hip and there was so much excitement. God, he was and, so great. And he was really funny then. He God was really funny. damn it. I don't want to sit around the fire with making s'mores with loquacious spider monkeys. <laughs> loquacious spider monkeys. <laughs> about the uh, Merrill Lynch, how often do I have to look at this bull's dick on TV? <laughs> I'm in my living room enjoying a beverage, and I see this little penile rivulet in the yeah. same penile rivulet. Yeah. I mean, it it was before it was like right when he's you know it was before he became too aware of his yes. voice. Yeah, yeah. Because the third special when he went back to DC, right. it was just like rant, 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 right. and it was so soapboxy. And I was like, oh no, like he gave up comedy and jokes in yeah. favor of like. Hey, Spike Lee, we can't jump. You can't lighten up, right, my right, man. Right. Like, it was a lot of that kind right, of... Right, became more diatribe. Yeah. yeah. That one I remember, and Bill Hicks did one in England uh, that a friend of mine directed where he rode a, a horse across the Tower Bridge and there was flames on stage, and it is just a fucking magnificent comedy special, and Hicks is in rare form in it, and he does, the you know, a lot of the dirty stuff, but a lot of the political stuff, too, and I don't know. I think you have to pick and choose with your, you know... I use Doug Benson as a, my role model for a lot of things. And uh, <laughs> in, in so much as uh, he said to me, don't do things you don't love, which is a very important thing to hear from another comedian. Yeah. Like stop doing the things that are making you grind your teeth. Right. Why, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Why are you chasing the things you're not going to be able to control? And uh, the other thing is he puts an album out like every year. And I thought I hadn't put an album out. I think since 2008 or 2009. And so I made one this year in January and I'm going to put out in the summer. Oh, nice. And it's like, but he's right. You know what I mean? Like he's right. George Carlin was right. Do a new hour every year if Uh, you can. I don't think I, I don't. It's very difficult. It is difficult. I I just, I think every two years, for me, every two. You're so busy though. Well, but every couple years I think is good because I just want to live with the material for a while and... Uh, and have a chance to really tighten everything up. Sure. So, and not, not only get too precious about it, but because I've only in the last couple of years become because for me it always used to be about the joke, the yeah. almighty joke, yeah. and now I'm like, eh, you know, you, you one doesn't work, you try another one. Like, don't get too precious about any one joke. You can take jokes, you can leave jokes. Some can be in your special; they don't have to be. You can say some one night, you can say others. You can riff like it all. It all kind of evens out, you know. It doesn't because it, it's just like this idea of like you, uh, you were born with a finite number of joke right. midichlorians, right, 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 right. and you're someday the well's going to get dry. Yeah, and maybe don't get some, to the bottom there. Exactly. But I sort of feel like no, you know, because you have new experiences, and you, you yeah. as long as you as long as the sort of machine is in place to process that and repackage it to the audience, and like a, here's how I feel about this. Then you know it's it's but it's not so much about this is the perfect joke. Yeah, yeah. I used to get more uptight about it, but I've never I've never edited my own comedy album since the first one I ever made, and my first one's like oh god, twenty years ago. Uh, it, I've always handed them off to people and let other people I trust edit them. Now, of course, I work with the special thing, and so those guys do it. But yeah, uh, uh, Dan, I did a couple albums with Dan Schlissel, and I did albums in England, and I didn't take the material. Because I think you're, like you said, it makes you too precious. If you sit there and listen to your material over and over, you're like, that word is in the wrong place. That was supposed to be an adverb, not a preposition. And that doesn't, you know, but you let someone listen to it who just is like wants to laugh at it. And then they give it back and they're like, no, 
oh, you put it together the way it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of the way I would have put it together, which was the diagram that you have to pull out and, you know, like, I got Niels Bohr there to figure out the... <laughs> You know, the atomic weight of that joke wasn't exactly. <laughs> I think you're right. And then I, pr- I riffed in the album and I riffed on the, the, t- the, the video one that I did. And I, I improvised as much as I could within the framework of it because it's something, one, I can do. And two, it's this. St- why would you hide the thing you can do? Like, be, of course. Like, uh, yeah, I can write material and stuff, but that's not the funniest part of whatever I'm doing. The funniest part is if something fucks up, then that's the funniest part. Yeah. You know, and like. Why remove that? Uh, I always wanted to be a technician. Like, uh, uh, I don't know if you know Mike Ferrucci. He writes for the Comedy Central roasts and stuff like that. He's an yeah. old-time San Francisco comic. By that, I mean I know him for 100 years. Yeah. And he did one-liners, and, and they were genius. And everyone was perfectly crafted. They all stood on their own. Like, he could put them together in a long thing, and he had routines. But uh, Or, you know, like, I would say Seinfeld, but that's not my style. Uh, I love deadpan comics, too. Like, I wished I could be... Like Tig or, or, or Todd Berry. Right. I love deadpan. I can't do it. Like, I'm right. terrible at it. You know, I can do it for a minute or two, but I can't hold on it. I can't do my, fa- <laughs> I can't do my favorite stuff either. Like, my favorite stuff was, all, and I watched all comedy yeah. when I was growing up. It was just voracious. But it was, um, it was the surreal guys. You know, yeah. it was like Emo and Stephen mm. Wright and, and Judy Tenuta. Right. And people like that. But I can't. I can't sell those that no. type of material. It feels fake when I do it. Well, and no one would buy it from you. No, you don't look like it. You don't act like it. It's not you, you know. But it's so funny that like that's the stuff I love the most, right. and I can't. Or you know, or Steve Martin, which was very yeah. esoteric and you know multi level. Like, oh, here's the here's the level of jokes if you're just a drunk audience member, right. and here's this other weird arcing philosophical commentary yeah. on performing that's happening at the same time. Yeah, no, he worked on a million levels. I mean, I'd love to be able to go up there and go, I went to the store the other day. You know, <laughs> it's the bravery of being able to do that in front of a huge crowd and expect them to shut up and listen to every goddamn syllable. Because then it really is important, this, yeah. the wording of everything. But I'm, I just, it's not me. I gotta be, I'm... I'm half esoteric asshole, half complete vaudevillian. You know, that's it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing and I'm gonna dance. I do pratfalls. I pull faces. I do impressions. Uh, I, I believe in the Lenny Bruce school. You know, like yeah. Lenny Bruce. When you listen to those early, early, early stuff, it's bad impressions, and he never stopped doing them. He just got more hip. Right. You know, the material changed on. He changed. His point of view changed. And then he said, "What? I'm not a comic. I'm Lenny Bruce." And what did Hicks say? My favorite one: less jokes and more me. <laughs> And I, I feel like with the stand-up, there has to be a wall of jokes anyway. But with the podcast, it really can be more you. Then yeah. It's really more you. Like, I'll go a long time in the podcast talking about something. And the, 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 the pressure, the, the impetus isn't there to fulfill every 15. You'd ne- you know, it's like going to see a one-person show. Uh, not today so much because there's obviously like Mike Berbelian, really brilliant comics doing them. But 20 years ago, it was like, you know, Sandra Bernhardt and Eric Bogosian and those type of people. And comics would always go and sit with their arms folded fuming because you go like, this hasn't gotten off the ground and she's been on for 15 minutes. You know, like, <laughs> you're like, you would have front loaded the fucker. You right. Know, so the, the first 15 minutes, by that point, everybody's gasping and then you slow it down, you know, like right. a set, right? Because a set has a shape and everything. But you think with the, oh, these fucking theater crowds are so easily fooled. These fucking subscription people that have come in from out of town and they think this is fucking funny. I, I used to see that all the time. And um, I think that's shifted too. Now there's more trust in that. And uh, now I trust myself at this late age to be able to hold the crowd down for like an hour, an hour and a half and not have to fucking worry that every second 
I don't have to take my hat off or fall down or, yeah. you know, whatever goofy shit that's going to get their attention back and everything. But it's kind of funny, this, this, this sort of vaudevillian idea, but it's like, you know, one for the floor, one for the box yeah. seats where it's like... One for the band. F- yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, fart joke, Johan Gutenberg. Yeah, you know, it's like, right. you go like, you go back and forth. I just, I was in, um, uh, I was in Minneapolis and, Wisconsin, and then Madison, Wisconsin over the weekend. And I did something I've never done before, because I did two hours on Saturday night. Nice. And I've never done two hours before. You must have been loving it. I did. But yeah. the, well, the crowd was really great. And so it was sort of a combination of me talking to them. And if, there's not a, if, there's, if it's either a late show or there's not a show after me, I'll take Q&A from the audience. Because I, I, I very much like Comic-Con panels. Yeah. And so I like to talk back. So I'll just, I'll just let people, you know, like in the last 20 minutes, if there's time... I'll just let them ask questions, and it just like it went on, and but it, but it was really fun, yeah. and uh, and I really it it really is like a live performance is anything you want it to be, you know, just make sure it's entertaining, you know, but it can really you can do anything with that time. I bet they love that too, Chris, because they really want to talk to you. you. You represent so many groups, and you have so many different things going on. I think they're fascinated to know like what's happening with you and and how this works and why you're able to do. Walking Dead, uh, uh, comic books, uh, the the million topics that you're on. You well, know? they do because there there are a lot of different touch points, and so people have Walking Dead right. questions, or they have you know Ron Funches questions, right, right, or they right. have you know bowling questions or whatever. So it's really it's really fun. But I but my something that really really inspired me was maybe six years ago I was at the Punchline mm-hmm. and Chappelle was there doing one of his residency, one of his like. His sort of spontaneous residencies right. where and I ended up opening for him for a couple shows, and I was so inspired by watching him. It was almost like Groundhog Day in a way, where it's that line where Bill Murray says, "You know, well, you know what what if what if the real God isn't omnipotent? He's just or he says a yeah, version yeah. of he's just been around so long, yeah. he knows about everything, and watching Chappelle was very much that thing is. He had a conversation with the audience. Someone would say something, and he would start, and he would weave into something which I couldn't tell if it was improvised or if it was just he's done so many bits that he yeah. has a file folder right. of like, oh, he has something on that. Yeah. It was so seamless, right. and I and I really thought like that to me is such a great live show experience. Yeah, that's fantastic. I remember seeing him at Aspen years ago at the the old HBO Aspen Rich People Festival. And uh, <laughs> where, where all the HBO, all the show business people would come and go skiing all day. So if your show was late, they were all in bed. Yeah. I used to do like midnight, one o'clock in the morning shows. And of course, nobody that could help you would be there <laughs> because they were tired. They'd yeah. been skiing all day or whatever. They're busy with their the driveways with the heat. Under this them. was like 95 or something, oh, yeah, wasn't it? Late it was like 90s, early 2000s. Oh, early 2000s. Early, okay. Yeah, late 90s. I did it. Oh, God, my first show that was. And I, and I had to give it a name. I think the first year I won it, it wasn't stand-up. I think it was like a one-man show, but it wasn't. It was oh, just right. fucking jokes. Right. I think it was called Mr. Proops Goes to Lower California. <laughs> but Chappelle got up and did a set, and like we were just doing a showcase in a bar. And he drank a Coke, ate an orange, and smoked a cigarette. And he was on stage for maybe half an hour. And he peeled the orange very slowly and kept talking. And he goes, I'm coming back here next year with a bunch of brothers, and we're going to set up a barbecue on the mainstream here. <laughs> And this is not a threat. This is a thing. And he was going as slow as humanly possible. And then he lit a cigarette and smoked it for a while. And it was as close as I... People always say comedy's like jazz or whatever that that poor metaphor from the 50s. Sure, But it was. And I thought it was was one of the most magnificent sets I've ever seen. He wasn't trying to kill. He wasn't there to impress anyone. There was 50 people in the room. And he 
laid the law down like yeah. on how you hold a crowd. I remember Warren Thomas years ago, my old buddy who's passed away. We were doing a Sunday night set at the Mint, and there was maybe 10 people there. And he got up about halfway through the night, and Shakespeare, just fucking Shakespeare, he blew off the set that was like, and it's the perversity, right, of show business. Uh, uh, the place was paralyzed. But I remember Harold Pinter's story from the beginning of a book of plays. And Harold Pinter was an actor before he was a playwright. And he did provincial theater in England, which meant you played pubs and little theaters and did Shakespeare, and you had to double and triple up on parts and stuff. And the head of his company was a guy named Mac. And he talked about performing with him and that he drank a lot. He was an old-fashioned theater uh, manager, as they used to call him, right? It's my company. You all perform with me. We do these plays. Tonight we're doing, you know, uh, Coriolanus, and then we're doing Twelfth Night, blah, blah, blah. And he goes... One night he'd go up and he'd just be drunk and fucking not do anything. And another night we'd be in the middle of nowhere in front of nobody and he would give the most gripping performance in the human experience. And he goes, I could never get over the randomness of, you know, <laughs> being able, you're in Scunthorpe on just a Sunday. Essentially just like, essentially a moment just lost yeah. in time. Yeah. But this, this minute number of organisms happen to experience this, but no one ever. Yeah, yeah. And those to me are like the most, you know, and like you say, inspiring. Uh, Louis C.K. was shooting his uh, special when he was shooting the Blue Jasmine movie in San Francisco, and I was headlining, and he wanted to come do set. So they said, do you mind opening for Louis this night? And he'll just do his, you'll just do 20. You don't, it's still your money. And, and Louis is going to do his set after you. And he made people pay cash to get in. Uh, so I walked into the dressing room and saw something I hadn't seen in 20 years in a club, the cash box, <laughs> the green cash box with the lid and yep. the thing in the drawer and a girl sitting in there, uh, counting twenties. And, uh, he did three shows. Uh, he probably won't like that. I'm saying this, but he, he bought everybody's food and drinks at every show and said to the crowd, don't tell the next crowd I'm fucking doing this. Yeah. And he was working out his set. So he had his, he had his uh, notebook and whatnot. And I go, Lou, you're not making any money this weekend, man. I go, you're paying for everybody's stuff. You're, 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 you know, he goes, I'm here to work, Greg. And then we got into this big philosophical, and just watching him work, of course. And of course, the crowd was vibrating at the chance to see him yeah. do something that's not even fully fleshed yet. Yeah. Uh, and I was completely inspired. And he gave me this giant talk uh, about comedy. And, um, and I'm obsessed with Negro League Baseball, which, of course, is covered in the book quite <clears throat> at length. And, uh, he said, I happened to bring up Satchel Paige. And he said, Satchel Paige was my inspiration for all of this. And I was like, you're kidding. And he, I go, wow. And he goes, Satchel Paige, of course, was a, a famous black player when they weren't allowed to play in the big leagues. He was so popular that he formed his own team and barnstormed. So he'd wear a uniform that said Paige's All-Stars. They had a little private plane. He pitched like the first three innings of a game. He got half the door. Like Whoa. he did what we do now as entrepreneurs he basically just figured well uh i'll cut out the middleman the audience is yep. there all we have to do is yep. show up and i don't need owners i don't need this i can rent the park i can bring the team and louis said satchel he said to me no one told satchel page what to do he figured it out he figured his worth as a performer out and fulfilled that by and i was i at that point i was like melted into the couch and well stuff. of course because most people most people assume um and 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 not necessarily rightly, particularly to, in today's technological age, mm. that um, oh well, you can't do your thing until a, an authority comes yeah. along or an, ent an entity, uh, some type of a corporate something, and says, "You go on," you know. Yeah. Like it, rarely do people go, "Oh, I guess if enough people, sh I could just do that." Like I don't need someone to, yeah. you know. Particularly with comedy, where like, I mean, really, you don't need 
it, in the barest form, you could just get up and start talking to people. Yeah. They're like Chappelle and the you know this footage of him in the '90s just going into Washington Square yeah. Park and just doing stand up and people crowding around. Like he didn't need anything no, for that. You don't. Oh, you could do it on video and put it posted, and which people do, and some people have made a career out of that, and that's the brilliance of it. It's a portable thing, and it and it's a. It, you know, it, it, it's an evolving thing all the time it, because it, because you can just do it for nobody or for two people. Um, I, of course, prefer more than two. Uh, <laughs> I'd like you to be mildly coherent when I see you. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it, there's a lot of people to get inspired from that to do different things. I mean, when I first started doing the podcast, I had no idea what I was going to do. And after the first one, my wife goes, "This is what you should do." She goes, "You, do, that's what you do. Sitting in front of a mic and talking." Is funnier than you doing stand up. It's funnier than you doing improv because you're doing you're bringing all those things to bear, but you're talking about stuff you like. So therefore, the sincerity of it, you've already you know you don't have to pretend you're sincere because you're already being sincere. And you know because sometimes at a club you, as Bill Hicks used to brilliantly say, slap on that plastic smile and plow through this shit one more time. <laughs> well, there 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 are some of those shows where you have to where you have to do that. Uh-huh. Like you, you you can survive. Mm-hmm. The show's going to be fine. No one's going to leave upset. Mm-hmm. But it's not, you know, it's you're you're not uh, you're not carving any new yeah, exactly. uh, initials into the comedy stone. Uh, new, uh, <laughs> and I, you know, you try for a, a combination platter of that, and and to not get my biggest fear is that like I'm a drunk at a party because uh, I do the show by myself. I'm afraid of repeating my same stories over and over again, which I know I've done now. Oh, and we have too. And I always say to Kyle, like, have I talked about this yeah. in the podcast? But there's, but when you have, you know, a thousand hours yeah. of talking, yeah. it's probably going to, I'm sure during this podcast, I've, I've said things I've said before. In the oh, podcast. I have too. But, you know, it's just, these are the experience. We only have a finite number of experiences to draw from. And so right, on. and my, my imagination is not infinite. Uh, <laughs> I try to think of new things, but uh, like it's everything that I've done on the show uh, uh, that's, that's worked or that's become a shtick and a bunch of junk that's in the book wasn't my doing at all. It came from the audience or it was a mistake or something happened and then it became a thing. Yeah. And that's why I trust the universe more than my own instincts some of the time. Well, and it's not only just it's it, it, it's not only just yeah. I get is you know what it's exactly right. It is it is sort of trusting the universe, but also trusting yourself equally to know mm-hmm. that no matter what happens, you can you can uh, not fall off the log. Right, like you can you well, can navigate it. I mean, I've got there's catchphrases and shticks and you know callbacks and all this jazz. None of which I established. All of which came out of the crowd, and then I caught on to them and was smart enough to chase them down and. And I think that's not to be completely. Leonard Cohen said, "What is it? Cracks are where the light shines through." <laughs> oh, that's and, I never heard that before. Yeah, and I always think that's a brilliant thing, you know. Do you think it's um, so? It, when you're talking about, you know, you saw Warren Thomas kill uh, in front of ten people, or the Pinter thing, and you know, oh, and then that guy was amazing when there was, you know, no one. Do you think that? That makes those situations more special, or do you think it would have been good? Oh, if, if just the right person, or if they had been filming that, like, yeah. does the fact that it was this isolated incident that only lives on through folklore, right? Uh, does that make it more special somehow? Is it better it, to not record everything? I think it is. Uh, like you were saying about the uh, uh, Meerkat app or whatever. Every moment of everyone's life is not to be recorded, and I sometimes I don't take pictures of places when I'm there, even though you know you can now. In the old days, you had to bring a camera, but now, of course, you've got a phone with you, and you can. But I think sometimes just be here, mm-hmm. just be there, and just be part of it. And 
I understand afterward that everyone wants a picture and they want to commemorate. And, you know, like you said, I also understand that people work really fucking hard and are spending money. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, you have a duty to try <laughs> to at least pretend to be interested in what's going on. Um, but, yeah, I do think it makes it more special. I, I don't know that I'd like it more if I could revisit that night, but I can kind of remember some of it, you know. And the parts I remember are extraordinary. And it wasn't like he didn't kill all the time. He did. It was just that the perversity of killing in front of 12 people on a Sunday at the Mint never escaped me. Like, yeah. you could put him in front of 1,000 people and he'd kill. We did a New Year's show in, like, 1994, and for some reason, I was closing. I guess I was pretty popular in San Francisco then. And Warren was on ahead of me, and he went on and testified. Like, it was like a fucking revival meeting. And I was... Uh, I remember a Pat Boone interview once where Pat Boone goes, uh, 1955, and I'm at the top of the bill, and Elvis is opening for me. And he goes... <laughs> All I could think of while Elvis was on was, thank God I have a hit record right now. Because fucking Elvis comes on and all the girls fucking give birth and the men are having a heart attack. And then Papoon comes on and goes, tutti frutti, I really like it. I thought that was me following Warren, man. Like Warren got up there and he was fucking sweating and waving his arms and the place went fucking bananas. This was the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. Like, oh, wow. Five. What a great venue. Yeah. And you know, you see those posters with the punchline of all of us. And yeah. And Feldman and me and, and, and Bree Matthews and, and, uh, and Warren and whatnot. And, um, yeah, and I remember thinking, thank God I'm on TV right now. You know, and I had the material anyway. I was in, I was in form, but, he, you know, he just lit the fucking sky up. And I was like, wow, I've got to come on and do this. There's no sailing, you know. Are there places where people can dig up his stuff? Very little on YouTube. There's a few club sets on YouTube. Uh, even at his memorial, they only showed... Uh, random stuff from the punchline that they had on video. The, he did a Dennis Miller one that was, and Dennis Miller introduced him as the most trenchant comic he knew working. That was from the golly late 80s, maybe. And then I remember doing uh, an MTV half hour comedy hour at like in San Francisco at um, uh, the new, the Great American Music Hall, and him getting up and doing a set. And him hanging Rob Schneider out to dry. It was very funny. Uh, Rob hadn't done a set in ages, but he was on SNL. And Warren goes, "Uh, let me bring out a good friend of mine. And Rob Schneider. And I thought they were going to riff together. And fucking Warren walked off the stage and left Rob out there. And Rob, like, he hadn't done a set in like a year, right? Even on TV. So he like, hey, how's it going? You know? And And I thought, you fucker. You really just fucking did that to be a fucking asshole. Which he had, of course. Uh... But no, yeah, that one might be on. I don't know where those old MTV half hours are, or or those old Showtime half hours. I don't that's know. That's what he did. That's why I remember seeing him do like full blown, you know, sets, and he would do like the most arcane references in the world, uh, and then expect the audience to completely fall in line. And and then if they didn't, he'd go, "Where did he lose them?" And he'd do the diagram of where he lost them and all that. <laughs> He's probably more influential on me than him and my wife uh, because he was so errant. He'd have a great big crowd on 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 a Saturday night, and a comic would laugh at some random shit he said, and that'd be it. Then he'd play to the back of the room and forget <laughs> the crowd for the rest of the night. And then we'd be at the Mint with ten people, and he'd fucking write a you know James Joyce novel. <laughs> like he wasn't, you couldn't control. He couldn't control his gift, you know, his muse. He could obviously, he could manufacture it anytime he wanted, but whether he wanted to or not was the question. And you know, we all strive for a little consistency so that we're consistently funny. But also there's something magic about people who one night they just like us. 
I said, I took my wife to see Hicks in the early 90s, and he had the worst fucking night I've ever seen him have. I mean, it just didn't get off the ground, and he got angry, and he didn't, he promised dick jokes, and that was the most hilarious part. <laughs> he kept saying, Dick Joke Island, it's right around the corner, y'all, we're going to go to Dick Joke Island, and he never did. Oh, no. Yeah, and then my wife was like, that was awful, and I was like... <laughs> You didn't see him last night, you know, like, <laughs> when he laid the fucking law down and the show should have been chiseled into tablets, you right. know. Uh, Is that, do you think that's... <laughs> Do you think that's uh, what being a pure artist is about? Because there is, there is, I mean, comedy, any kind of art, isn't just art. There's a balance yeah. of art and science, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, particularly when uh, there's, a, there's a great line from Steve Martin's play, the Picasso at the yeah. Pinagiel, where he's there with uh, Einstein. Picasso's there with Einstein, and, and they're sort of battling about who's better, and then... Uh, Einstein writes down something and goes, look, and then Picasso draws something, and then uh, Einstein looks at Picasso, th- er, Picasso looks at Einstein thing and goes, but that's just a formula, and Einstein goes, so is that, you know, <laughs> so there's this sort of like, this sort of like balance between, like, the pure artist yeah. might just go off in a million different directions and have mega hits and mega misses, yeah. You know, but someone who's a little more of an engineer and a scientist will figure out how to rein that in. Do you think one's better than the other? Uh, no, it's just two sides of, of what goes on. And the, the fact that show business even allows those two things to happen or many things to happen. I think that people who are good at show business are good at show business. Uh, I'm not particularly good at it, and I, I've never been able to focus on it that much or, or – or the business side of it or anything like that. And then other people are very good at it. Uh, I don't think it makes you a better or more pure artist, but I do think it makes you a different kind of artist. The element of jazz that I would subscribe to that I think comedy is like, is like if you go to see whomever, Sonny Rollins or, 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 or Joshua Redman or whatever jazz artist you go to see, on any given night, they know what they're going to play, but because it's jazz, they're going to improvise mm-hmm. in the middle of that thing. And, so, and, the, and the whole band is too. The whole band can improvise and vamp for however long. And when you know, like you, when you did two hours the other night, you know when you're on it. And when they're still focused on you. Yeah. And when, it, when it, they start to, you know, yawn and look at their watch. Oh, you feel it. You can feel then, it. you know, like, but you wouldn't have stayed on for two hours no. if it had been that way. Right. You stayed on because the energy coming out of the crowd sustains you to do that. And I think that's the kind of artistry that I like to see. You know, the, the, I don't like seduction a lot. I don't like the, don't you love me? I'm a lovable guy or right. girl. Uh, or I push all these audience buttons right away to make sure everyone's on my side. I'd much rather... I saw Carlin years ago, and all the comics I'm talking about are dead. I would be really, except for Louis, it would be really nice if I could bring up a comic who hasn't perished in the last 20 years. But I remember going to see Carlin and then, like 15 years ago at the store, and uh, it was a, the, you know, the whatever room, that one, the, you know, the little round one of the store. And uh, uh, everybody stood up when he came on, and he was wearing like sweatpants and a, you know, a sweatshirt, and he went, fuck you. That was his opener. And then he went, I just want everybody to feel at home. And the place exploded. <laughs> and then he went, uh, I, I don't have this part memorized. He goes, I don't improvise. I memorize. But I don't have this memorized. I hope you'll indulge me while I read this. He took out a piece of paper and he read it and it was hysterical. And I thought, he's completely in command of his gift, right? Like his writing on the paper was exactly how he was going to say it. Whereas you or I might scribble a note or a direction to go in or, and then you'll try to fill it out later. Or, I mean, I don't know how everybody's process works, but obviously George Carlin sat down and wrote every syllable. And he was very honest rather than trying to fake the audience out. He was like, this is where I'm at. Which is like another way to say we're in the moment together. 
I'm not going to try to pretend like I know what's going on. Right. I'm you, not going to lie to you. I've never seen anyone read off a piece of paper, a 15, like a 10-minute piece, and it just was monstrous, everything. And at one point, he was doing a bit about, and he had this line, what was it? What are Dan Aykroyd and these fucking guys singing the blues? White people have to understand, we're not here to sing the blues. We're here to give people the blues, right? <laughs> and at that point, I was gasping for breath. Like, you know, they talk about it at a comedy show, wiping tears of joy and gasping for breath. I literally, at one point, when he ran off one of his, you know, uh, you know how George Carlin would eviscerate the topic, right? Uh, home style, home fried, homemade, home this, home that. Yeah. Like, he 400 of those in a row, at that point, I was literally under the table going, <gasps> like, I could like, stop, yeah. stop, I can't breathe. Did you meet him? I met him once at another uh, gig at a rate. A guy was interviewing him, an English fellow I know, uh, named John Pigeon, who had a brilliant interview show. And he would come to the States, and I got to meet Tim Curry and uh, uh, George Carlin at two different interviews, and he'd go, uh, if I could do John's voice, come about twenty minutes in. That way, they, you know, that way you're not sitting there when they come in, and they're yeah. like, "Who the fuck's this person?" Yeah. So you know, you sort of slide in, and I watched the interview with Carlin, and he asked him, "Do you, you know Pryor, right?" And he goes, uh, "You guys are lumped together always." And Carlin goes, "Because we started at the exact same time, and we were both in New York." He goes, "We used to smoke joints on the fire escape outside clubs and shit, but we were never best friends." Oh, wow. And he started talking. This was in the interview, right? So then he came out, and he goes, what do you do? And I go, I'm a comic. And he's, you working? And I go, yeah. And he signed a thing for me, for my wife. And uh, then I was at New York several years ago. Bernard Baruch University has a little college station. And they go, we had Carlin in. And I go, how'd that work? And he goes, we met him, and we asked him, will you come and do our station? And he went, I'm in New York on such and such a date, like May 15th. I'll be there at 2 o'clock. And he fucking showed up in a car with his buddy, not a retinue, not a hired car. His buddy drove him, pitched into the station, did the interview for an hour. There was pictures of them on the wall with him. That's why I asked. Yeah. And they were like, they, he literally took out a book and went, all right, I'll be there. Wow. And I said, how pro is he? And they were like, he was magnificent. He gave us all his time and all his focus when he was there. And then it was, bye. Wow. And like, so there's more like there are definitely <laughs> there are definitely more elements than you know than just being the funniest person in the room. Oh, I mean, I think Joan Rivers was the same way. I had the I worked with her for a year on TV Guide Channel uh, when, as my friend said to me once, we were doing the um, uh, uh, the one of the award shows, SAG Awards or something. Goes, are they going to give you the whole screen this time? Because <laughs> TV Guide Channel used to put you the, <laughs> right in the, the guide would run you yeah. you'd be in the corner. Yeah. And she was the most generous kind. I don't think anyone who ever met her wouldn't, wouldn't say she was. I'm ad- interested in comedy. I adored her, yeah. and and I and we got to be friends in the last couple yeah. of years. She was she was alive, and and I always, I, I had always kept saying to myself because we'd we'd hung out quite a few times, and uh, uh, or a few times we hung out a yeah. few times, three or four times, and and I had always wanted to. Oh, the next time we hang out, I'm really going to sit her down and and just start asking her yeah. comedy questions yeah. and really. Um, and I didn't get the, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, because I just assumed like she'll live forever. Like it never, know, right? you know, I never did either. And I wished I did. I wish I'd, you know, cause we, she would have talked to you course, about it. We talked about comedy and she'd tell me things, but we were always on a set or in a thing or there anything. And it wasn't, you know, occasionally we'd be over at like the TV guide place and then you'd have a few minutes to hang with her. But like, I feel the same way. Like, why didn't I sit down and go, tell me everything starting with the compass. Like, let's go back to. When you were in New York and then when you went to Chicago and what was it like with Nichols and May? And we got that? some of that on the podcast when she was on the podcast, yeah. but it 
but to really sit down and actually have a very personal because imagine what she could have told. I mean, the wisdom yeah. and 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 yeah. the work ethic. I mean, it it just she was so she was so wonderful and uh, and I re- like just one on one. Whatever you know, whatever people think about her stage persona oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. or like, oh, she said this offensive thing. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. to her, jokes were jokes. Yeah. But but one on one, my God, what a wonderful, brilliant. Curious, you know, like if you want to learn a lesson about how do you not turn into a shriveled old person mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. D- that is basically an inert lump, yeah. Be curious. Keep asking questions. Yep. Try to learn. Don't shit on everything. Yeah. Really, really, really want to know how things work. Yeah. And she was a tink. She was. She was that way. I agree, and I, I kept her vital. And she did sets every week. She did a set the night she died. The night before she died, she recorded every set she did and went over it. Uh, her work ethic was extraordinary and she wasn't an inert like you say I had her on my little chat show at Largo that you did years ago and uh, when she passed I cracked out the DVD and watched it again to see if I remembered it, it the way it had happened because I hadn't watched it and of course I started crying because uh, she was lovely and she, do- she told this one joke and she could barely get it out because she was laughing so hard at her own fucking joke <laughs> she goes when I was a little girl I wrote a letter to Hitler I said and then she becomes hysterical, right? And then she tries to finish. I wrote a letter to Hitler. I said, there's a couple in Teaneck, New Jersey you should look in on. And she's crying at that point. And, uh, Did you ever put that out? No, I, I never put it on YouTube or anything like that. I have it, and it's a, it's a half hour of me and her sitting at Largo. She's in her Chanel. I'm in my little suit. She says to me, I was on first class. Honey, you've never been in it. And I do this horrible take, like I'm so mad at her. And there's a photo of it, and it's my favorite picture that I have in comedy. She's hysterical and holding herself in mid-hysterical laughter, and I'm fuming. Oh. And it's the same. We're looking in different directions. Like there's one of me and Sarah from that show where we're both looking at the thing, but like just that I've got to even do it is so exciting. And she went, I love you at the end. And that's when I lost my oh, shit. Of I, you know, like, I didn't know her really well. We weren't best buddies. We emailed each other over the years. And like I said, we worked together. And Melissa was always really nice to me. But she, like you say, if I could have spent like a weekend with her and just talk. you Because yeah. I saw her in London once. And I was with my wife. And we were at a fancy place called The Woolsey. And she was there with two show business types. Like London show business types. And um, I go, oh, look, there's Joan, right? I go, I'll wait till she's done, and then I'll say hi to her. Well, she ain't got her glasses, right? And she gets up, and I go, I grab her, and I put her in a fucking embrace, and I go, Joan, it's me, Greg. And she goes, fuck you, right? <laughs> <laughs> so she's, we chat for a minute, and then she splits, and uh, dessert comes to the table, and the waiter goes, uh, Miss Rivers bought your dessert. Oh. She was just... The fucking living end, man. The I, living end. And always with the designer clothes and the, you know. And I saw her backstage getting in her makeup, you know, the old lady. Yeah. And then she'd tell me comedy stories and stuff. And, I, like, I just wished it could have, you know, you can't chase people down and right. tackle them to the ground. After we were done doing the TV Guide thing, she moved back over to E! Channel and had an enormous last five years yeah. of her career. She became even bigger because TV Guide was kind of like a little stopping point in between and then back to the fashion police and the Oscars and everything. Well, her career is a, <laughs> her career is an absolute testament to 
You're only out if you give up. Yeah. Because she had huge years and shit years and huge years again. Yeah. Medium years, huge years, shit years. Like it. There is definitely. There is definitely a, 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 a sine wave to that oh, yeah. to that career. She never ever. I mean, like I said, right that night that she did the talk show, the TV guy d- deal fell through, and I think she was getting like seven million or something. And I remember they said to me, "We're going to do another deal," and then they did eventually, but they went over to E Channel, and then she did The Apprentice and the movie. Yeah, and like by the time she passed, she was on a huge fucking roll again. Yeah. She had two internet shows, was it? In bed with Joan. Yeah, she had an internet show and three TV shows. She had the fucking reality show. She had the fashion police. And then when they didn't show her at the Oscars, I went off on my podcast for like an hour about it. Well, that was just a fucking ridiculous. They didn't show her at the tribute. I mean, even if you... She has been in movies, for fuck's sake. She wrote movies. She was in movies. Um, She invented Who Are You Wearing? Like... The idea that I said when I was little, I watched the Oscars when I was a little kid, and I'm old enough to remember this, you know, the late 60s, early 70s Oscars, you know, and the guy streaked with Liz Taylor and all that shit. There was no red carpet. You started watching when the show started, and you stopped watching when it was over. She invented the excitement of there's four hours of this before, and there's two hours of it after. She invented that circus, and for them to shit on that and pretend that it didn't happen that way, yeah, I really, it really fucked me off. It, 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 it did me too, <laughs> in, 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 especially because it's like, Oscars, get the fuck over yourselves. You're not like, great art. Seriously, you're, you, you're a television program. It's yeah. nice that you're honoring these people, yeah. of course. It's great to be nominated, and this is how we recognize, you know, like, th- this is sort of a, a milestone. Oh, well, you know, I got nominated, I got this award, right. this tells me that I'm kind of on the... But, for fuck's sake, like, you know, w- was there a problem that, well, I don't know, she insulted a lot of people, so we didn't want to blah, blah, blah. I don't know what their fucking deal was, but it was, it was completely off base to not have her in the tribute. Why did people watch the show? Has anyone seen all the movies that were nominated? No. You're watching <laughs> to see what people are wearing before and to see what she would say to people. Yes. The year I did it with her, uh, Rinko Kikuchi was nominated and all these Latin directors because uh, uh, Pan, uh, not Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. Uh, uh, and she didn't know any of their fucking names and she would just <laughs> butcher them. Right? <laughs> I'm here with Jose Mendalorero. <laughs> Rinko Kikuchi. And then, like, J-Lo would come up and she'd be like, oh, my God, Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> if it was, you know, Will Smith or someone she really knew that loved her. And there's a bunch of stars that loved her yeah. that weren't afraid because some of them come up, you know, they'd come up like this, you know. And But she'd just massacre people's names she didn't know. And I thought, good for you. <laughs> she'd have on, like, blue tinted shades and a fucking, you know, $50 million worth of diamonds and shit. And I, like... I just fucking loved her for that, that she was like, you know what? It's my fucking show. Yeah. And then someone would leave and she'd be like, oh. And I, I said, no, he's still alive, but Alan Arkin won the Oscar that year for Little Miss Sunshine. And I go, um, she interviewed him on the carpet before the show. And of course, they know each other since fucking Second oh, City. Oh, I would imagine, yeah. Since the be- before it was Second City, right? When she was in it with Barbara Harris and Alan Arkin and fucking Paul uh, Sell, you know, like the fucking, the, you know, the antediluvian days when there's just giant butter, you know, uh, <laughs> dragonflies with five foot wingspans, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Troop ferns as big as your house. Carnivorous you know? conifers. Right. <laughs> the sloths are ten feet tall, and <laughs> and you know Alan Arkin came up and he, hey Joan, you know that is Alan Arkin thing. You know, no, 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 I'm glad to be here. It's another, you know, it's just another night. Blah, 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 blah. And she went, I like thanks, Alan. You know, and I said to her after, he seemed like kind of miserable, you know. And she goes, Oh my God, he used to make Barbara Harris cry. Oh. Uh. <laughs> 
And I thought, that's something from 1950-something you're talking about. <laughs> you're not talking about yesterday. You're talking about 50 years, you know, literally 50 years ago, what, how he acted then, because you've known him that long. And you're both still in the game. Yeah. And he won a bloody Oscar. But, you know, he just, he's not a lively, you know, he fucking talks like this, <laughs> like he's going on. But, like, it's the night you're winning. You're 79, you know. Let your face know, as we it's say. Like, <laughs> you, know, and, you know, this may not happen again, you know. Yeah, I just, you know, I, she, helped, she helped foster the Oscar community and helped the broadcast. Yeah. Like, they really owed it to her. To- half-hour tribute, I would have done, before or after. Go, like, here's a half-hour of her on the carpet. This is what, these are the greatest moments. No one put this together. No one thought. And in that crappy, the drawings they did, even a short of that, how about two minutes of just her... Oh my God, you know, like I remember the first time she interviewed Elizabeth Hurley and she didn't know who the fuck she was. She goes, Oh, Hugh Grant's here. Who are you, dear? And Elizabeth <laughs> Hurley goes, I'm Elizabeth Hurley. And then afterward, Oh my God, she's not that bright. You know, like she's fucking, you know, ooh, ooh, and, and did one of her faces and did the barking and like, I was fucking hilarious. You know, like who does this? The thing, you know, like you were talking about like comedy philosophy and, 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 and artistry. I, I, when, well, I remember the thing she said was, I say the things people think. You know, you're talking about offending people. And now we live in a world where everyone's offended yeah. all the time. And I don't mean the PC thing, because to me, that's common decency. Right. I really hate when people go, I'm trammeled by the PC police. No, you're not. Right. You're just a racist. Right. Or a sexist or a misogynist, you know. Black people do this or this. Yeah, yeah, what? Yeah. I can't. Oh, right. oh right. I'm right. the asshole. Yes, you are. Yes, yes, you are. As a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, but, but she would say all these outrageous things and slanderous, libelous things. And I thought it was funny. Like, the, you have to understand, that's her shtick, you know? And I remember sitting with her thinking, I thought I was influenced by Carlin. I thought I was influenced by all these, you know, intellectual comics. And I'm not. It's her. You know, <laughs> at the end of the day, like, the random pot shots, the fucking, she would go from the highest jokes to the meanest jokes in two seconds. She'd turn on the crowd. Oh, my God, don't give me lesbians. I can't fucking do a show in front of lesbians. Like, it's the worst <laughs> thing in the world to say. <laughs> And it's so true for her, right? Like she goes, give me a room for the gay guys. We got a show. Yeah. <laughs> put, a, put a bunch of lesbians in the front. There's no fucking show. They all sit there. Mwah, you know, like, <laughs> like you, but she earned the right to say it. That's the other thing. Like, you know, you, at a certain point, you earn the right to say what you're going to say. And like, if you're 21 and you get up and you start talking about bitches or something, you, right. that ain't for you, man. Right. Put in a lifetime and then we can all talk well, about it. Well, because, because something has to be authentic and, yeah. uh, and authenticity is based on experience. And, you know, for someone who had been doing comedy for, for almost 60 years, yeah. uh, or may, maybe 60 years, yeah. then, you know, she's had, she, had a lot of, she had a lot of experience. And, and had been, tra- I remember she said, her and, and John, I got to interview Jonathan Wonders a couple times, and I asked him who he liked to improvise with, and he said Johnny Carson and Dean Martin. That was his first two in that order, Johnny Carson and Dean Martin. And I went, why? And he went, because Carson will let you fucking do anything. And he goes, and Dean Martin was a great comedian. He'd just go with the flow. Whatever I threw at him, he threw it back. And he goes, uh, I go, what about Jack Parr? Because he used to go on the Jack Parr show in the old days, and Parr would go, Johnny, and here, take this, and hand him a stick. And Wonders would get up and go... <laughs> Like in 20 minutes with the stick, right? Yeah. Improvising. Like people always go, who's the greatest improviser of all time? Jonathan Winters. He didn't need a group. <laughs> like, on whose line? We got a band. You know yeah. what I mean? We got a bag of suggestions. We got, you know, there's a lot of support for your improv. Yes, we're improvising, but there's four of us. Right. And I'm also up there with fucking Colin and Ryan and Wayne, who are the funniest fucking, 
you know, like I said, we can bounce past like the Showtime Lakers, right? I don't got to look behind me. I just throw the ball behind me, and I know Colin's got the ball, right? right? Like Because we've done it for so long. It's not a matter of we're so genius. It's a matter of experience and that. Winners didn't need a fucking group to make him funny. <laughs> he did it all on his own. And I said, what about Par? And he went, Par would censor you. Oh. And then River, Joan Rivers, one of her first, she'd been on par a few times, and one of her jokes was, oh, what the fuck, I can't remember, I'm going to get the joke wrong. But she, something about an Italian girl being hairy was the joke, of yeah. course, which is always what she, and oh my God, you know, she, I'm so hairy, blah, blah, blah. And Parr went, do you know how many Italian Americans watch this show? <laughs> and sank it, right? Sank oh. the joke and never had her on after that. Oh, no. And, that, and then finally, Carson, you know, she got back on with Carson and everything, but like, she said, Par just shut her the fuck down. Wow. And, and t- t- instead of letting it bounce or making a comment and moving on, yeah. he fucking put the fucking hammer down. Do you know how many Italian Americans watch the show? Oh, wait a minute. You're taking umbrage on everyone's behalf? That umbrage was not taken on the joke. The crowd laughed at right. it anyway. And like, right. I really, and I thought, oh, that's, that him and, that her and Winters both said that. Wow. That, that Parr was this kind of like, because he was, no one remembers him now, but he was insanely, I don't remember him. I'm not that old, but he was in, before Johnny, he was. He was the Tonight Show. And, and, and made a bunch of comics, you know. And then Winters said to me, he did a, a sketch with Bob and Ray and you guys, now I'm really taking you back, but Bob and Ray Classic were radio, radio guys. Right, they were radio act for a thousand years, and they their radio act sounded improvised because they would do the man on the street interviews and stuff. And the joke was always the guy's name was Wally Baloo, and it was always as if the mic had kicked in halfway through his name. So he got Wally Baloo here, <laughs> and that's how the joke went every goddamn time. And they did it for thirty fucking years, right? And then I'm here with the uh, the head of the whatever it is, you know, the Slow Talkers of America, whatever the sketch was, right? And they always did the same. One guy always interviewed, and the other guy. So Winters goes, we're doing a TV show, and uh, I got Bob and Ray on my show. And he goes, I can't wait to fucking work with Bob and Ray. And he goes, so I get Bob and Ray out there, and I go, here's the deal. I'm Paul Revere, you're a Minuteman, and the British are coming, and we're going to, they go, whoa, 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 where's the script? And he goes, what script? We're going to fucking improvise it. I'm Paul Revere. I come running in, and they go, no, we don't do that. And he goes, but I listened to your show for fucking 20 years. They go, it's all written. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) We, We write it to sound that way. We write it to sound offhand. We write in the pauses. We write in the mistakes so that we sound like that. Wow. And I was like, and I went, oh, my God. I didn't know that. Because I always thought that the way they do it, it sounds made up, you know? Like, tell me about the Komodo dragon. Well, the Komodo dragon, you know, like they. It sounded conversational. It was so offhand. And I think they're like, you know, them and Gene Shepard, there's a few radio personalities from the old days that really are the, the antecedents of podcasting. Because it's just people in front of mics. Because that's all we're doing is radio. Yeah. But people call it a fancy name because it's on your phone now, and not you don't have to listen. And you're with a big crystal set in your house with a dog sitting there, and <laughs> with a picture of Roosevelt on the wall. <laughs> Next time you interview me, I'm going to have some more modern references. <laughs> talk about so Wyatt Cynic or someone. And you were talking about comic recently. You were talking about Teddy Roosevelt. The next time you'll be on to be a Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> you'll update the. You'll it's just update. that I, I have so much respect. You know, when you when you start talking about Joan and and Jonathan, and we haven't even got to Rob, and they, they, they some of them are magnificent comedians. You know, uh, others, you know, like you say, become inert piles, or they only play to their age group. And I was desperately afraid always to not get old in front of my crowd. And I don't mean get older. I'm going to get older and I am old, but to keep the crowd young, 
you don't, for lack of a better target, and this is a horrible thing to say, but you don't want to be Jackie Mason and play into a room full of 80 year olds. Right. And Joan wasn't. She never was. Joan's crowd was young guys, young girls. Everyone came. Like she had that because she kept the crowd young. Doing an internet show, an e channel show, a fucking, the Oscar, you know, like everyone was there. And, and I think that's just imperative. Uh, you know, people made fun of Robin when he did all the kitty movies. Um, there's kids who grew up on Jumanji and fucking all Robert. those. That, 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 they love him. Yeah. They love him. Now they're 20-something or 30-something. It doesn't matter. Like, it's imperative. And with me, it's the podcast. I get teenagers riding me. And I always say to those of you listening in a blanket fourth that are 14, please do not go in and ask your mother what a clitoris is right now. <laughs> Let me off the hook on this one. Because <laughs> last week there was some filthy. I read a piece of poetry and it was there was a line about I stuck my tongue inside her or whatever and I'm like if you're 13 please don't go in right now. <laughs> Wait till after. And then they write me. I get letters from fucking 14 year olds who go I listen in a blanket for it and you know everyone I mean, in my town is a square and you're my stone uncle and you know when I was 14 I was <laughs> I was listening to Richard Pryor yeah. and Carlin and absolutely and uh, every kind of comedy everything yeah. and you know it's like I wasn't. I didn't need to be sheltered from that, and no. it, was, it was... Nor did you think they were old and, and irrelevant. No. Like, t- uh, my problem with, you know, whatever, I can complain about show business all day, and I will. Um, you meet show business types, and they're like, young people want to hear other young people. It's like, no, they don't. They want to hear honest voices yeah. that aren't talking down to them. Yes, that's all. They don't, they don't want to... Someone sounds old when they're like, hey there, buddy. You know, like, then right. you know, like, okay, you're angling for something. Right. Because you're trying to come down here. And I think it's that way with a comedy audience, too. When they sense that you are trying, they, they can sense the neediness and the desperation. Yeah. Like, then they don't trust you. And they go, well, what, do you, what do you want? Right. Like, why are you trying right. to come at me like this? What if you, why not just talk to me like I'm a fucking person? Like, if I ever, if I ever have kids, I don't know if I would be like, hey there, little oh. guy. I'd be like, hey, man, what do you want? Bye. Breakfast? You good? Things yeah. cool? School good, you know. Like I don't think I, I don't think I could be the the talk down to you guys. Uh, kids are the biggest bullshit detector in the world, and not. And I was just going to say that because that's exactly right, Chris. It's like you remember when you were little and you'd meet your dad and mom's friends, and the ones that would go, "Hi, how are you?" You love those people. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Hey, we're going to go to a thing. You want to sit in front? And then the ones that went, "Oh, little man, well you're just like your daddy, aren't you?" Yeah. You're like, "Fuck you! <laughs> Get your fucking hands off me and don't pinch my cheek and grow up." And I hope your husband never finds your clitoris. Right, right. exactly. Which he hasn't. That's why you're such an unbelievably. And I never talk that way to children, and I never have. Uh, whenever I meet kids, I'm like, "Hi, how's it going? Are you married? Are you seeing anyone?" <laughs> <laughs> and they love it because you're treating them like they're a human being worthy of respect. I did a kitty show on Nickelodeon for a couple of years, and we had a live audience. It was a sitcom, but it was a live o- – now, of course, all the kids are huge superstars. I think Robbie Amell, who was on the show, just signed to some giant movie. But be that as it may, uh, the crowd would be – I think you were supposed to be seven, but there would be five-year-olds there. Sure. So the crowd would be like from five to ten because that's kind of Nickelodeon's – you know wheelhouse 11 maybe 12 and i had to do pratfalls and fucking takes and we'd fall over and the jokes and and to kill with a crowd of seven-year-olds 
is the real deal. Because if it ain't funny, they go, this isn't funny. Like that at the top of their, I didn't like that. Like they don't have any barriers. They don't have any boundaries. No one told them to laugh politely. Like, you know, in Hollywood, people go, oh, that was really good, Chris. Yeah. Really good. Well, no, you have great stuff. And you're well, like, that's that. weird. You're expressing that with words. And yeah, yeah. Under- <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't actually like it. You're just lying to me when kids never did. I remember we'd do a take and like I'd do a pratfall and a kid in the crowd would go, oh my God. And then you'd be like, now you know that fucking word. Yeah, kids don't play a game. They're like, this game's very entertaining. Yeah. I really, it's got a lot of ups and downs, and I really, yeah, it's really great. Your feelings are not paramount, uh, <laughs> and you, you, they're not analyzing it. It's right. either funny or it ain't funny right then and there. And I, uh, I agree with you. It's a matter of not patronizing people. And, uh, of course, although I'm the most patronizing comic of all time, I don't patronize the audience because I, <laughs> I talk at them, to them. And I do have lots of teenagers write me in. And that, the thing that I find is like, you know, everywhere in the world is not an open-minded place where everything's encouraged. Right. And uh, I'm always saying on my show, like, if you're young and you're living somewhere and you're not getting what you want out of it, you have to think about leaving that place. And yeah. carpe diem. And, like, don't think about being a writer. Don't think about being a painter. Don't think about whatever it is you're going to do. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it now. And I know that's the, a glib white people bourgeois thing. I, like, I hate that poster that says, if you don't like your job, quit it. Um, <laughs> what if you have six kids? Fuck right, you. Of I, I, don't, I don't buy that part. But someone has to be the encouraging older person. And that's who I try to be. And then people write me and go, I'm going to start my coffee shop or I'm started being a standup and I, or I'm going to do that. Not like I'm so inspirational, but you don't get a lot of backup in the world when you're a kid, you know, like people don't go, if you're 15 and you go, I'm going to be a comedian. Not everybody goes, hooray. Right. And like, they'll be like, the fuck you're going to be a comedian. You're going to finish college. Yeah. And, and then what are you going to fuck- do for money? Right. Right. What are you, right. What are you going to fall back on? Yeah, exactly. You know, my, I remember my mother said to me when I was like 30 something, have you ever thought about teaching? And I went, <laughs> mother, I've been a comedian for fucking, you know, <laughs> I go, I get checks, you know, she's like, yeah, but you know, there's always another, I'm like. Could you misunderstand my life more? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. You know those I can pies try. You make? I can you try to sell those, Mom. You know that jam you make that you give to me? You should sell that to people at a stand. <laughs> That's really funny. It is, it is because it, it, it is that thing of people not realizing that their environment, that if you're not happy with your environment, you could change your environment, mm-hmm. you know? And again, you're right. Not all the time. It's, very, it's very easy to say, like, yeah. Drop everything and run free. Right. But I do think there are still cases where, you know what? Maybe maybe there's an extra 30 minutes a week that you could find to devote to something that you're passionate mm-hmm. about. And over time, the better and better you get at it, incrementally, that path will start to carve out. It doesn't necessarily mean... Drop everything. Right. Move to New York City. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter if you have money. If you have a family, fuck them. Forget it. Just get, yeah. you know, it's, like, it's not saying that. It's just... There, there might, there are, there are things. It's not like you can do nothing. Like there are right. some things you can do. Absolutely, you waste. T- you know, like maybe uh, uh, don't watch television for a, an extra half hour yeah. a week and devote that to something that you like, and then eventually that can, you know, like you can figure out what to do with the thing. No, I just think it's important to encourage people to do, follow whatever it is they're going to do. So many people end up in crappy dead end jobs or they have kids right away or whatever it is that happens and then you know they're unhappy you meet them and you can see that they're unhappy or you play in front of a crowd of people and they're unhappy and you think mm, uh, something along the way somewhere didn't happen for them and so you think well maybe if they're young enough and you kind of push them to do that and I always say don't take no because everyone tells you no you know when I was first a comic I remember sending a tape to a club 
like some shithole in Scottsdale. And the guy, I called him, I remember. I was in my 20s. And he, call, and he goes, you're too intelligent for our crowd. And I said, are you telling me your crowd's stupid? <laughs> and he went, you're not smart enough. And then I ended up going there anyway and doing a set. And of course, I did fine. I am, you know, I'm not reading from a fucking periodic table of elements, you know. And he wouldn't book me. You know what I mean? And everyone's always willing to go, I don't like that. Yeah. I don't think it works. And that, and especially, you know, you would know as well as anyone in show business, people would rather fail with something tried and true than ever do anything new. Like the idea of something new, 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 they, you know what? We want something fucking edgy. No, you fucking don't. You want something that's already going to sell before it comes out of the box. Yeah, they never mean that. No, they don't mean it. But I I just think that, you know, people like Joan, just to bring it all back around, are, are are a good inspiration to anyone who... Thinks like, oh, I can't. I mean, you're talking about a woman who started doing comedy when, I mean, you know, if you if if people think there's misogyny in comedy now, Mm -hmm. you know, how about the 50s? You know, like everything she did was an uphill battle. And but to her, you know. It just was like, well, this is this is what I'm going to do. And she just fucking yep. figured it out. They used to make her recite her set before Sullivan, and they didn't do it to any of the male comics. She'd have to stand in a room with a bunch of guys sitting there smoking, watching her in the room like we're sitting in with her recite the jokes. Oh, man. And they'd sit there judging her. And they didn't do that to any of the men. Corbett Monica never had to do it, or Jackie Vernon or whoever. But fucking Joan had to because they only had, what, two or three working women. It was like her and Toadie, maybe Mom's Mabley, fucking Phyllis Diller. I mean, it was so small, the pool, like you say, the misogyny. Uh, and she never fucking gave up. And she never took no. And when she got told no, she fucked off and did something else. <laughs> you know, like she didn't let them control her. Uh, you know, no, no one tells you to do something great. You have to do it on your own. Yeah. Uh, not that I've done something great, but... At least I know that I should encourage other people to do something great. <laughs> yeah, no, she is total inspiration. Uh, and she gave up her bourgeois middle-class life to be a stand-up comic. Yeah. She had a whole life played out ahead of her. She was married and everything and was going to be the – and went, fuck it. I'm going back into the clubs and played shitholes. And, you know, like I remember you know, we're talking about like one day I'm going to be a, play a place where there's like towels in the bathroom. You know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> well, I – if there's any way to – I don't know. There's just there's not going to be any way to get her on the Oscars next year. No. But uh but at least, you know, the people who know know. I just Yeah, they do. And and I think she got a lot of love when she died and and also, you know, the just on one last, you know, I don't want to hammer it to death, but people go, "Oh my god, she had too much surgery or this 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 like um look at all the comics that are her age. They're not exactly a fucking oil painting." You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Obviously, that was a serious issue for her. It was an identity issue and a, and a, and a self-worth issue. They are oil paintings. That, that painting is Dorian Gray. <laughs> <laughs> but hammering on her for how she looked, I thought, was always the stupidest of it. Well, it's, it's – you know, I, I think part of it was just people wanting to say some yeah. sort of a mean thing. Yeah. But then also – I mean, to be fair – that's something she would have gone after on someone. Oh, absolutely. It's just that when the people that were going after for it, it's not like they were skilled word artisans. No, no. Uh, but, you know, anyway. Uh, your Liz Taylor? <laughs> she used to make fun of Liz Taylor when she was fat. <laughs> what was it? The, the fucking, oh my God, I can't even remember it. The McDonald's one. Where she, she stands there. Well, she stands next to the microwave yelling, hurry. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> 
My my big problem right now is that I could talk to you for four more hours. Oh, I know you got work, comedy, baby. And I, I, have, I have to go to rehearsal f- to make sure that all the clip segments are in place. But the the smartest book in the world, a lexicon of literacy, a rancorous reportage, a concise curriculum of cool. Nice alliteration. Thank you. Uh, Greg Proops, creator of the Smartest Man in the World podcast. Uh, the book is available now, I assume. May 5th. You can pre-order it on my website. It, it's very it – a, it's a good cover. Thank you. And it's a, it's a striking cover. Uh, the book is, is shiny. If you like shiny things, pick it up and then be titillated by the words inside. Uh, but uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you, and, brother. And everything else. It's endorsed by Chris Hardwick on the I back. I endorsed it on the back? <laughs> yeah, I did. And uh, what did I wrote? Warning, stupid people are cautioned to avoid this book. Its advanced comedy notions may cause emotional hemorrhaging and or unwanted brain wrinkles. Yeah, that's all right. Um, this is a... Uh, I'm very... I'm, I'm proud to be your friend. Well, and, thank you, and, and I, I you. And, and I'm glad that... Uh, I, I, My I wife mean, did the illustrations, too. Oh, did she really? Yeah, yeah. Jennifer did all the... All the pictures. Oh, these are great. It's family affair. Fantastic. I'll do a better book next time. I like the uneven pages, too. Yeah, what is that? I, I, I forget what they call that in publishing, where the, yeah, like the, the pages aren't sawed off even. So it gives you that. Uh, it, like if you take the cover off of it and kind of throw it into some water, you could put it back on your shelf. and, and like it, Yeah, same, yeah, it looks yeah. like it's a 19th century book. <laughs> <laughs> you should follow Greg Proops. Uh, is, are you just Greg Proops on Twitter or is it Gregory Proops? No, Greg Proops. Just Greg Proops yeah. on the tweets. I'm yeah. a regular guy, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Just a, <laughs> just, a, just a regular bloke, just like you and me. Uh, I'll put french fries on my sandwich. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> of the finest russet potatoes. Uh, the, the sandwich, of course, being prime rib. Yeah. But uh, I will hopefully see you soon on At Midnight. Are you doing the show anytime? Uh, beginning of June, I think. Okay, good. We're going on a book tour in May and jazz like that. All right, good. Well, it's good to see you, Greg Proops. Good to see you, pal. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Thank you. The end! Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity... That is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied. Like a liar. Like a liar. And if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal, or you love to hop in the Wayback Machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes, you should tune in to our podcast, Morbid. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to episodes early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.